The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 386. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. And you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You get the best coupons. I had an awesome Black Friday sale, a great Cyber Monday sale, and I've extended that out a little bit. So if you didn't get in on those sales, just click on those links or get another email here. Click on those links, get a sale. So uh, you know, I, I decided to continue that out. It was a smashing success, but I want you to have this material. We need this material now. These classes are essential in the modern political environment. So... Going out to McClanahan Academy, enroll in a class, lifetime membership in each class. So if you enroll in the U.S. History Survey course, for example, you get it for the rest of your life, or the rest, I mean, as long as the class is there, and you can download everything. So if you're a homeschooler, you can use it for multiple students. You can download it once, let your oldest get it, and then they can, they can the next one can do it, and on down the line. So you've got a great opportunity to have multiple students, multi-generations, view and enjoy these courses. And I've got well, 14 classes at this point. So my newest one is Southern Cultural and Intellectual History. It's a four-part series. It's a great class. Uh, you can get one through four. I will be offering a bundle at one point, but right now you can buy them individually. Um, so that is that was a lot of fun to make. 100 primary documents or very good secondary documents on Southern Cultural and Intellectual History. I don't, I don't usually talk about the classes, but it's such a fantastic class. I wanted to mention that. Um, so go on out to McClanahan Academy and roll and get those classes. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on that shop tab. Lots of ways to get your Brian McClanahan show logo, gear, and all kinds of cool stuff. Get one of my books. Get a book plate. That's through the support tab. Throw a few pennies my way. Help keep this podcast free of charge. And, of course, get people thinking locally and acting locally by sharing the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcast. Let people know you listen to this show because this is how we change things from the bottom up. I and mean, we're not going to do it from the top down, that's clear. It should have been clear over the past four years. I think anybody that put their eggs in that basket saying Donald Trump is going to drain the swamp or Donald Trump's going to do this or that has been sorely disappointed. At least I hope you would have been sorely disappointed. I mean, I know that there are a few things that I thought that he did well, but um, there wasn't a whole lot of change, and that's because the institution can't do that. And I think the size and scope of the general government has gotten to a point where it cannot be reformed from the top down or really from the inside out. It has to be reformed from the bottom up and the outside in. And that's local government, that's state action, that's you getting involved in the things that you can do to try to change your community. And you know, I'm encouraged uh, by you know, the Free State Project and other things, people looking to try to form political communities that better reflect their worldview. And I think that's important. Now, I want to talk about something that I found interesting from NPR. Now, this is maybe you never thought about this, but I mean, it's interesting. NPR ran this article. Of course, the conclusion in it is just ridiculously stupid. 
But the fact that they, they're talking about this, and I want to focus, because I don't do this in my constitutional history class, so this is something that's in addition to that. I don't talk about the 20th Amendment. But the 20th Amendment was very important. The 20th Amendment was very important because it was passed in 1933, and then it took effect in 1937. And this article talks about that. Passed in 33, the states ratified it, took effect in 37. You might be thinking, well, what the heck did the 20th Amendment do? Well, the 20th Amendment changed, first of all, the first part of it changed the time period that we had between the vote for president and the inauguration. It used to be March. And in, for, in Washington's case, it was April before Washington was inaugurated. So you had a long period of time, what we call the lame duck period of time, for a president, bef- it, whether it, in a transition, whether it's a one-term situation or a two-term situation, or in Franklin Roosevelt's case, could have been a three- or four-term situation. We, I mean, look, the original Constitution allowed for the president to be elected as many times as the president would stand for office. So it wasn't until Franklin Roosevelt that we had this change in the 22nd Amendment where the president was only going to get two terms. But this particular 20th Amendment was also put into place because of the Great Depression, because of Franklin Roosevelt. It's amazing how much impact Franklin Roosevelt actually had on American government. If you want to point to presidents that have had a tremendous amount of, of uh, influence on the way we think about executive authority. Well, I think there's really only three, and that would be Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. Those are the three. Um, because Washington being the first, and of course all three of these men are in my nine presidents who screwed up America, in the nine who did. Abraham Lincoln because of the situation with the Union at that point in the war, and then Franklin Roosevelt because of World War II, and because of the Great Depression, and because of the fact he's the only president who was elected more than twice. And the way that the Congress in the United States rallied around this administration was rather unique. Uh, Roosevelt was extremely popular. It doesn't mean that everybody liked him. In fact, there was a, a large number of people who didn't. But he won in landslides every single time he ran. Four times. Won in a landslide. All four times. So Roosevelt was very popular. I mean, there's, there's nothing you can say about that. I mean, he was. But it's during the Roosevelt years, in those 12-plus years that Roosevelt was president, that we saw a shift, even a, more, a greater shift in centralization of power and, of course, executive government. And the Congress was playing right into it. And I, I talk about this in my Nine Presidents book, how at one point the Congress was passing a rolled-up newspaper I mean, this is the rumor. They didn't have a bill yet. So they passed the newspaper and knew that they would get the text of the bill as the Roosevelt administration was writing it. It was cascading down from Pennsylvania Avenue to the U.S. Capitol. And so, I mean, this is, this is amazing stuff and what's going on here. So I want to talk about this piece and then, of course, the 20th Amendment. One thing that's really interesting about the 20th Amendment, it sets up you know, the succession if we have a president-elect And, of course, we don't have a president-elect until the Electoral College votes. We don't have that. That's what most people don't realize, and until the Congress agrees to those votes. Now, I've talked about this, and I I, I mentioned how Pence and the Republicans in the Senate, if they really wanted to, could gum up the works. If they were really dedicated to this idea that there was election fraud and irregularities and they were going to hitch their horse to that wagon, they were going to pull this thing, this is what they were going to do. This is going to be the hill that they die on, that Trump was not elected legally, 
that Trump was uh, defeated by a, a vast conspiracy of voter fraud. This is what they firmly believe. And I, look, when you see all the circumstantial evidence, everything that's piling up, and I mean, of course, some of these lawyers aren't really presenting anything at this point, but there have been some hearings, there have been some things going on, and people have come forward. I watched a video yesterday from a contractual truck driver from New York to Pennsylvania. He was bringing ballots from New York to Pennsylvania. Now, why would you bring ballots from New York to Pennsylvania, a whole truckload of them, and his trailer goes missing? After he's told to go park it somewhere, it goes missing. So where did these ballots go? Did they Were they for Pennsylvania to try to swing the vote? We're never going to know 100% because I think that the side that was doing this would be so good at it. There wouldn't be the smoking gun, so to speak, that you would say, here it is, here's somebody that said, oh, we're, we're rigging the election. This is what Nixon ran, to in, ran into in 1960. They sent teams of lawyers out there, and they knew it happened, but they couldn't prove anything. And this is always thrown in their face. Well, you found a few people voting more for Johnson, more for Biden. The fact is, there is fraud going on, or at least irregularities, if that's you know, maybe some people voting that should, maybe there's, I mean, the, the turnout itself was a situation that should raise red flags. And the fact we're doing this via mail, if we didn't have mail-in voting in 2020, I think the election looks a lot different. And you might, the, the, the proponents of this would say, well, this gets more people voting. This is, this is why, because we get greater democracy, greater participation. This is what we want. We want 100%. We want everybody to ma- be mandated to vote. But the fact is, it opens the door. Most people recognize, most countries recognize this. You don't do mail-in voting unless there's a very good reason for it, unless you do it with a certification, because you can, you're opening the door for fraud. I mean, this is, this is why. So if the Republicans really wanted to hitch their horse to this wagon, they could do it. Now, once we have a president-elect, though, let's say, I mean, Joe Biden is 78 years old. He still looks pretty fit. Of course, his mind is not necessarily always there, and I think we all know that. The evidence is all over the place. The man is already suffering from early-onset dementia. But physically, he's in good shape. It appears that way. But let's say something happened to Joe Biden. There was a funny meme going around. It had Joe Biden as... uh, um, Nancy Kerrigan and uh, Kamala Harris as Tanya Harding. Hilarious. Uh, and, you know, look out, Joe, because Kamala Harris is already forming out her portfolio and getting her staff together. Look, I mean, she thinks of herself as essentially co-president. I mean, this is, this is the way she's selling the vice presidency at this point. But let's say something happened to Joe Biden. Kamala Harris, according to the 20th Amendment, would then be president of the United States. So this is the way it would work. This is why people are saying Biden needs to watch his back before January 20th, even during this four years, because she really wants to be president. She is ambitious. She is probably more ambitious than Hillary Clinton. That's, that's saying something. Hillary Clinton was one of the most ambitious political figures in American history. So we've got Joe Biden needing to watch his back, I'm sure. But the 20th Amendment established that January 20th would then be the inauguration day. doesn't matter what day of the week it falls on, it's January 20th. We're going to, be, we're going to have an inauguration on January 20th. And it used to be uh, you know, March 4th, I think it was, March 4th. So we're going to, we moved that up a few weeks. Why? Why was that done? And this NPR piece actually brings us up. So let me read the NPR piece, because I think it's rather interesting. The NPR actually admits some things that... Uh, a lot of people 
don't want to admit right now. So the piece is titled, Wait, Wait, Don't Inaugurate, Why the U.S. Takes So Long to Change Presidents. So long. It's such a long time. Why do we do this? Why don't we just vote, and then you know the next day we've got the president? Um, <laughs> well, because this is not what the, how the system is set up. So this is by Ron Elving. President Trump's refusal to concede and the delayed transition to the administration of President-elect Joe Biden have raised many questions about the transfer of power in our system. One in particular has long been asked, why do we wait until the latter part of January to swear in a president we elect in November? Put another way, how is it that the Brits can have a newly elected prime minister meeting with the Queen to form a new government within a day or two, but we need 10 or 11 weeks to install a new crew? How is it these Brits can do this? Well, that's an easy answer. First of all, the British system is a parliamentary system. So essentially what you have is the leader of the majority party being established to handle executive tax from the parliament. The queen or the king still has executive authority, but they've essentially given that up to the parliament. So this would be like the Congress electing a Speaker of the House, and that person then handles executive tasks. So Nancy Pelosi would be handling executive tasks because that happens very quickly. And then, of course, forming a new government. Forming a new government would mean filling out the other positions, cabinet positions. We don't have a parliamentary system. We have a system that's designed with three distinct branches. The Congress doesn't sit down right away, right after they're voted in. So why should we do that with the president? We have a period of time where people have to serve out their terms, and we know that you have to have people transitioning, getting ready to get into the office. It takes time to do these things. It's not just, I'm elected, I, say, I leave the next day. So this is a dumb question in reality. It's a really dumb question. But of course, it goes back to the idea that we somehow have a democracy and we should just, the people have voted, but that's not the way it works. And in fact, to the piece's credit, it, it points this out. He says, well, since you asked, our transfer of power originally took much longer. It was initially set for March 4th, though in 1789, a bad winter storm delayed the swearing in of George Washington until April. Thereafter, the early March mandate was respected for nearly 150 years. A bad winter was a major obstacle in 1789 because so much of the system literally ran on horsepower. The best overland option was a horse or a horse and buggy or a horse-drawn coach over roads that were iffy at best, especially in winter. Sometimes it was faster to go by boat. After a national election, many riders had to mount many horses to assemble voting results from every local voting jurisdiction in the original 13 states. Still more would need to saddle up so that the results could cross state lines and make Multiple multi-day trips, I'm sorry, often in, in inclement weather. The second thing to remember is that the president is not actually legally elected in November. Oh my gosh. You mean we don't really have a president-elect yet, but yet Joe Biden's running around with the office of president-elect? Even this piece called him president-elect Joe Biden. He's not that yet. He's not that yet. So the piece contradicts itself. Joe Biden is not president-elect until the Electoral College meets and says, yes, Joe Biden is, elect, is president-elect and Kamala Harris. So what are we doing? Why are these people even doing any of this stuff? Well, it's, it's politics. You see, if Joe Biden had waited, there was actually 
This was put forward. This is why people think this is a vast conspiracy. Because you see, Joe Biden already had a plan. He had a plan. His plan was that if the election looked close, he was going to go forward and it looked like he might be the winner. He was just going to call himself president-elect and move forward like he was. Because you see, they knew this would happen. They knew that it was going to look close and that there was going to be some scrutiny over this because the mail-in voting situation was going to be a big PR problem for the Biden administration or the Biden campaign or the Democrats because they knew that they were cheating. They knew it. They knew the mail-in voting was going to work in their favor. So uh, they have a plan in place. That, so if Trump starts saying, look, we got to wait here, we got to wait to see what, no, no, Joe Biden looks like we're winning. We're going to say we won, we're president-elect, we're a vice president. I mean, this whole office of the president-elect, this is created by Barack Obama. Nobody did this beforehand. Nobody had an office of president-elect. That didn't happen. This is, this is the Democrats wanting to put, uh, wanting to make Joe Biden the de, the de facto president right now. Donald Trump, in their mind, becomes irrelevant at this point because Biden's already president to them. And the NPR thinks the same thing. But they even admit right here, the president is not legally elected in November. Gee, officially the Electoral College does the deed, and the institution does not do its thing until mid-December, more than a month after the popular vote is in. Oh my gosh, wait a second here. So we don't really have president-elect right now. We don't have president-elect or vice president-elect. We have nothing. We have nothing. This is why people, you know, I'm president-elect so-and-so. I mean, this is, this is the, the funny thing about all of this. The left admits their stupidity at times. But yet, they just think to the public, oh, yeah, President-elect Biden, blah, 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 blah. They're just going to go along with it. But they admit. It says right here, this year, the day is December 14th, following the constitutional calendar that specifies the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. That is when the official electors empowered by the popular vote will convene in their respective state capitals to vote. So not till December 14th do we elect the president. This is what Trump is banking on. Here it is, December 3rd. Trump's got 11 days to try to persuade the legislatures in the swing states to send a different set of electors. This is what he's hoping he can do by showing enough inconsistencies that there is going to be a question about the legality of the election in these states. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona that there would be enough momentum to get the Republicans that control those state legislatures, Georgia, to say, you know what, we've got some real questions here. We're going to send another set of electors because we think that there are problems. Now, he hasn't been able to pull this off yet, and I think he's recognizing that he's not going to. Why? Because the Republican Party has no backbone. If they really believe these things, then they would... They would simply just go do it, and they wouldn't care. I mean, this is what the founding generation would have done. But we don't have men like that or people like that anymore in government. So Joe Biden's not president-elect of anything at all. Neither is Kamala Harris. They're just still Joe Biden and Senator Harris. This is what they are. So it continues, the beast continues. That was true back in the beginning, too. So imagine how much time it took in the early days with the original 13 states to collect, tabulate, and certify the votes of the eligible ballots. Imagine, too, the time it took to get the necessary information to all relevant authorities. 
and to the electors themselves, who were presumed to be men from the upper echelons of social and political authority in their respective states. <laughs> Throw that in there at the end. I mean, the bias here, it's, it's subtle. Presumed to be men uh, from the upper echelons of social and political authority. In other words, all these uh, you know, racist white guys is what they're saying. Racist rich white guys, let me just say that. No women, no minorities, no poor people, just these people. Now, the electors had the ability to vote however they wanted. And they did, oftentimes. They didn't have to go by the... You know, we even cared about the popular vote. This popular vote wasn't even tabulated. Nobody counted it. Nobody knows how many popular votes anybody got until 1824. So to say that the popular vote, no, no, no. No, no. This was because it took. It did take time. But the Electoral College chose the president. Right? I mean, this is how it worked. These men would gather in their state capitals on the designated day and elect the president. Then it would take time again for official documents to be conveyed and for news to travel and be disseminated and digested. The new chief executive would be informed and begin assembling his top appointees to take office. Given the relatively glacial rates of transportation and information sharing two, uh, two centuries ago, it does not seem unreasonable that a newly elected president might then need weeks to formalize a team. I mean, look, the president doesn't have any obligation to fill any cabinet positions. Joe Biden could walk into office, or Donald Trump, or whoever, could walk into office and say, I'm not filling any cabinet positions. It, I mean, I'm not doing it right now. We're just not going to have anybody. I'm going to be Secretary of State. I'm going to be Secretary of Treasury. That's what I'm doing. I don't I mean, I'm just not doing it right now. Now, I know the Congress says you can, you can have these positions. They create the positions, and the president fills them. But the fact is, there can be, there can be gaps. There can be nobody sitting in a position. We don't have to have a team to take office. Unless you're Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, we've got to have a team, we've got to have a portfolio, we've got to do all these things. Treating Kamala Harris like she's anything but irrelevant is the funniest part of all of this stuff. The vice president was seen as irrelevant until the last half of the 20th century. Irrelevant. Nobody cared about the vice president. John Tyler was sitting at his house playing marbles when William Henry Harrison died. He had to be summoned to Washington because he didn't think he had anything to do. John Adams went and sat in the Senate, and he was bored the whole time because he couldn't do anything. In fact, he said it was the most worthless office ever created. The vice president was supposed to do nothing just to be the president of the Senate, but they could only cast a vote if the Senate is tied. They couldn't even speak. They can't do anything. So the vice president would just go home. That's where Kamala Harris, she should just go home to California and keep her mouth shut and do nothing until, unless she's called on to, uh, to serve as president at some point. Do nothing. Thus, the original March 4 date seemed to make sense, especially if one was planning on an inauguration ceremony to be held outdoors, all have been, with the lone exception of President Reagan's second in 1985. By March, the weather should be more reliable, at least in theory, though it wasn't so for the longest inaugural address and shortest presidency on record. And William, in 1884, William Henry Harrison took the oath of office, hatless and coatless on a cold day. The new president spoke for nearly two hours and then went to parties in his wet clothes. He soon developed what is believed to have been pneumonia and died a month into his term. Now, this, of course, has now been disputed by historians. Did he really have pneumonia or did he have 
some type of intestinal disorder caused by the night soil that was in Washington, D.C. at the time. We know that Polk died very shortly after leaving office in 1849. Harrison dies in office. Zachary Taylor dies very quickly after, uh, well, I mean, a couple years, two years after taking office. So there's a lot of sick people in D.C. Now, John Tyler did not die, but he complained of feeling unwell quite a bit. And that's because the public drinking wells were right near the sewage, essentially. And so there's a belief that there was some bacterial infiltration in the public drinking water in Washington, D.C., and that people like Harrison and Polk and, T- and Taylor uh, were developing symptoms to that. Once they had a new sewer system put into place, miraculously enough, nobody gets these problems because the drinking water was better. So it's always blamed on Harrison speaking outside without his coat on. He got pneumonia, but he might have had something else. Might have had something else. Now, the piece concludes six weeks sooner. But after a century and a half, Congress and the state legislatures were ready to salute the progress that had brought paved roads, railroads, motor cars, telegraph wires, telephones, and radio to the tasks of travel and communication. Congress approved and the states quickly ratified an amendment to the Constitution moving the date of inauguration day to January 20th. It was 1933, and the new date took effect with the 1937 inauguration of a re-elected President Franklin Roosevelt. The new date has held firm ever since. Now, this is where the piece gets really funny. At times, the hiatus has proved historically significant. In 2000, it allowed time for courts to process a flurry of lawsuits over the contested results in Florida. Oh, but we're not going to do that now. I mean, this is... You didn't mention the fact that there's contested. This election is contested as well. Of course, only the Democrats. They're all, only their lawsuits count. After five weeks and a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, the state delivered its electors to George W. Bush on the basis of just 537 votes. That mattered because by then the electoral college was about to meet, and whichever candidate won Florida was going to reach the 270 electoral votes needed to win the White House. Bush wound up serving eight years. Well, why is it that this is any different? In 2020, I mean, we should have allowed the process to take its course, to follow the course, and if the courts have to get involved or the states, why are we rushing things? I mean, this is a question that's been asked. Why are the Democrats so quick to rush things? Why are they just rushing through this? Well, because they know that if this takes long, a long time, probably some information is going to be dug up that shows that, yeah, maybe there's a lot of questions about how Joe Biden was actually elected. The Democrats want to rush it because they just want it over with. They want Trump out of office so bad that they are trying to rush the situation. Now, one thing I will say, people have talked about the down-vote, down-ballot voting. Look, just because you didn't vote for the Senate or the congressman or whatever else doesn't mean you didn't vote. I mean, there are people that will vote just for the president. Because we have such a lightning, uh, laser beam focus on the president. I mean, people will do that. They don't know anything else. They're just going to vote for president. And plus, if you're, hey, if you're paying people to vote or if you're ballot harvesting, well, that makes it a lot easier. Just mark the president and get along with it. You know? So if you're, if you're doing all those things, well, then this ballot harvesting is not necessarily illegal. If this person's standing there and you just say, we're going we're gonna to vote and you mark your name, it's not illegal. But you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily morally correct. It's not ethical. But it's... Mm, there's a gray area there of legality. So this, you know, made a, made a difference. 500, only 537. See, this is the difference between George W. Bush and Donald Trump because, I mean, Joe Biden's winning by like 8 billion votes right now. 
So, I mean, because he's winning by 8 billion votes, uh, because everybody in the world voted for Joe Biden, except for the 74 million people in America who are just, I mean, deplorables. Those 74 million people don't count, but the 8 billion people in the world that voted for Joe Biden, well, those people matter. So he's already winning by like 8 billion votes. I mean, what is the point of all this? He's already won. He's already won. He's got 8 billion votes. Donald Trump only has 74 million. So, I mean, you know, that's a big discrepancy right there. The whole world wants Joe Biden. The, uh, next, the next three paragraphs are funny. In 2004, the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, better known as the 9-11 Commission, concluded that the five-week struggle to determine the winner of the 2000 presidential election weakened the ability of the U.S. to detect and deter the plotters of the terrorist attacks on September 11. How? How did that weaken the ability? This is a stupid statement. If the 9-11, I haven't read this in a long, but if they actually said this, I mean, Bill Clinton's still president. This is, this is providing cover for the Clinton administration, which was responsible. Uh, you know, it, now, of course, Bush comes into office in January. I mean, how did this, how did this affect that? I mean, look, if the Clinton administration isn't, is there, they're still conducting business. I mean, the Trump administration is still doing that. Well, the Clinton administration should have, been, should have followed these things. And was Bush not ready to go? As soon as he got into office, sure he was. He was ready to go. He was ready to go January 20th, 2001. This is ridiculous. It's, that's, a, that's a bad argument. Just as ominous was the period after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. In the four months he had to wait to take office, seven southern states seceded and began seizing federal forts within their state lines. Any last chance of heading off the Civil War was lost. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. This is another stupid statement. We didn't have a war for those seven months, or four months, I'm sorry. We didn't have a war for those four months. There's no war. In fact, uh, what would Lincoln have done differently? I mean, if you say that he was going to go in and, and stop these states from doing it right then, we could have a war four months earlier. Buchanan actually prevented the war for four months. It's an, it's an idiotic statement. This is how stupid this stuff gets. And then finally, in the end, in the depths of the Great Depression, when banks were failing and industries collapsing, literally nothing was accomplished while the nation waited four months for FDR to take over from President Herbert Hoover, the man he had defeated to get the keys of the White House. Oh, you mean the fact that Hoover actually sent Roosevelt a handwritten note? Hey, look, we got to do something. You go out and say something. I'm trying to do something, but you're the one that has now all of the ability to persuade people, let's do something together. And Roosevelt showed the note to his advisor, stuck in his pocket, and laughed and said, I'll do it when I get there. So, yeah, in that case, Hoover was trying to do something. In fact, maybe Hoover was trying to do too much. This is what Roosevelt actually campaigned on. So this idea that somehow this delay hurts the United States is just propaganda from the NPR. It's centralist executive worship propaganda. It's so stupid, it shouldn't even be published. This is like public education, 8th grade public education history 1 and 2. I mean, this is what we're getting with this nonsense. But regardless, I wanted to talk about this because I think it's just an, an interesting and important issue and one that uh, you know does uh, affect what we're doing right now. And so 
you know, I've only done two podcasts this week. I've only it was only a couple of weeks till Christmas. I'll probably be back on just a two podcast a week schedule from here on out because I'll be going back into doing things that I had to do before the COVID pandemic. So they might be a little longer, 30 minutes. I'll try to get you a little more content in the time that I have. But uh, I will be back and doing some next week and the week after. So we still got a couple of weeks before, before I take a little time off. But hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Get on my email list so you can get those deals on McClanahan Academy. Christmas is coming up. Make a great Christmas gift. Great stocking stuffers, McClanahan, uh, Brian McClanahan Show stuff, Brian McClanahan books. I mean, all that stuff is out there. Get it for that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life. Just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.